0: Facebook is one of the biggest and most effective marketing platforms on the planet. It's huge; almost everyone you know is on Facebook, and quite a number of brands and businesses are spending millions of dollars to advertise on it, including small startups, mom and pop shops, local restaurants, and even churches. You can spend as little as you want and target specific audience you want at the micro level. But the problem is this: most people have no clue how to run adverts on Facebook. They either double waste a lot of money or hire someone else to do it for them. So my team put together a short course to help you. It's called Facebook Ads Mastery Program. It's a comprehensive ebook and a video course on how you can launch and manage profitable Facebook ads campaign for your business. And we made it super affordable too. For less than $10, you can have access to this course. Go to www.backchannel.africa forward slash Facebook dash mastery. If that URL is too long, you can just go to the show notes of this podcast and click on the link and get access to the course. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future podcast with your host, Dolton. coming up today on Building
1: the Future that when I booked my trip to go to Africa, I was going to Africa because I hadn't explored it at all before. I'd booked my trip starting in Ethiopia, and I was traveling by myself, and I was terrified of Africa. My parents were terrified. I had my mace can. I had like my satellite phone that worked everywhere. For those that don't know me, I'm about five foot tall and very, very small, petite white girl. The first day that I arrived in in Ethiopia, I jumped into a, a street party and I had the time of my life. And I just realized that I was ignorant and there was absolutely nothing to be afraid of and fell in love with it right away.
0: the future podcast season three is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. My guest today is Lexi Noviske. Lexi is someone that I met early on in my investment and entrepreneurial journey in Nigeria. When I first came with Potential VC, and we met at a conference and we exchanged numbers. But what I find really interesting about Lexi as at then and I still find interesting is someone who is super experienced, super committed and moved to Nigeria, worked with some private equity firm and then started working in VC. Super knowledgeable about the local ecosystem more than I do as a Nigerian. I find that super interesting. And since then, we've been meeting in different places, had dinner and at lunch. I'm super excited to have Lexi on the podcast show today to talk about various things, our journey, uniqueness about the Nigerian or African market from our perspective. Lexi, welcome to Building the Future podcast.
1: Thanks, Dotun. Great to be here.
0: It's good to have you. I think you are one of those people that have a unique view of the Nigerian tech or even business ecosystem in the sense that you worked in uh, private equity firm, mm-hmm. and then you work in a startup. But you're not just doing that. You, what makes it unique, that I thought, is the fact that you're American. You studied and grew up in America, but you came to this market, so you have a different view lens. Even though you stayed in Nigeria more than in the last ten years, more than I did, and mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have a unique view of of the market. Can you, let's start with that. I wanna throw, throw you into the yeah. deep end. What are the key things that you understand about this market that probably Americans don't get, or even Nigerians don't get?
1: Huh, well, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on the market at all. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. It's um, a unique view. But I do, yeah, I mean, look, everybody's trying to figure it out, even if you lived here your whole life, right? Yeah. Uh, this is a, a place that's definitely extremely dynamic, has a lot of diversity. Um, People who are extremely wealthy to people who are extremely poor, different races and religions. It, it's a it's definitely a, a massive population of people that are coming looking at digital, the digital economy from completely different perspectives. Um, I think probably what my background has brought to maybe view this market through a different lens is that I. Did come as you said, uh, come from a more traditional finance background. So I actually worked on Wall Street for a while before I came to Africa. Worked in private equity and now venture capital. I mean, I I kind of joke that I keep getting smaller and smaller in terms of deal size. So next up, I hope I'll become an angel. Um, (laughs) But I think coming from that side, from the finance background, probably has brought me um, some advantages in looking really tough at the unit economics uh, behind businesses, kind of their traction to date, being able to really look at the numbers. But I think it also has brought with it its disadvantage, right? I mean, I don't come from an operator background and, I, um, and I'm and i still an outsider. So I'm still coming from this as from a perspective that I still need to learn. And I think I have learned a lot, but, but I'm learning new things every day for sure.
0: How long do you... How long ago did you come to Nigeria and what actually brought you? I know you worked in a private equity firm in Nigeria. Um, I want to understand um, how long that has been and what are the key assumptions about the market that you had before you came and, and the operations mm-hmm. and the investing in Nigeria or Africa generally that you had before you came and how were those challenged within yeah. the first 12 months that you arrived?
1: So, So maybe not the first 12 months but So how I eventually came here is that I took a sabbatical and was traveling around Africa for quite a period of time just on my own backpacking around and decided I really wanted to shift my career to focus on Africa. So when I moved out here to, to join a local private equity firm called Varad Capital. Um, I was expecting, you know, this huge opportunity that was low hanging fruit, that it would be really easy to access for somebody like me who was coming in with having the finance background, some international expertise. And I could really, you know, make a quick buck here and it would be easy. That assumption has definitely been challenged. Why is that? I I think this market is really difficult to make things happen. You know, I think it's difficult because there's a lot of barriers in terms of infrastructure and regulation, but more so in terms of the way business is done with enterprises and also um, the education of the end consumer as well. Um, all of these things make it extremely difficult. So I think a lot of foreigners come into this market thinking that there's massive amounts of opportunity and they'll just be able to sweep it up. In reality, it's much much harder than that.
0: But, but let's deep dive into that. And, and I know it could be the nuances can be a bit different for both for private equity deals and and for venture deals, which are like majorly startups or mm-hmm. uh, greenfield businesses that are trying to um optimize um a very big opportunity that could either go down or or be big but for private equity my understanding is that it's very risk-averse you're working on optimizing 2x or 3x and an existing business that probably has been de-risked over time you're just trying to grow it and so I'm trying to marry that with what you just mm-hmm. said now about the difficulty of the market and educating the consumers. Uh, as I don't get it, why why would, would that why would that be an issue for a private equity? Yeah, deal? so
1: it certainly is an issue with private equity especially in this market, right? Contrary to other markets, it's not just taking an already successful business, making it more efficient or restructuring a company so you get more benefit on the equity side. Um, I think here it's dependent a lot more on relationships. It's dependent on, I would call it soft side due diligence. So you can't figure out how a company is doing in their business by just looking at their financial statements because they're carrying multiple books. Um, You can't, really determine if a company is doing well just because they have certain powerful political relationships and then if you come in as the owner, do all of those go away and your business is kind of destroyed. I mean I think you saw that a lot with, with Tiger, right? And and Dangote's company. Well
0: oh, um, Tiger invested in Dangote's company. They tried to take over and they, could, they said that they couldn't replicate what he's
1: doing. Yeah, they they had a really hard time making a go of it. I am i don't really know all the details. Yeah, but there, just that's so we'll the top up. line stuff. Yeah, right, Very Yeah. And even at Verod, they had some experiences like that, right? Um, that, you know, certain deals that they thought were uh, strong deals on paper eventually turned out there were, you know, soft side due diligence factors based on relationships and something came about and the, and the deal didn't go as, as as expected.
0: Isn't that based Okay, so my understanding about a lot of private equity deals in Africa as against what happens in maybe Europe is that you take minority stakes, you still depend a lot on the management. You can put controls in place, but the management the way they do things is probably the same but you're just you're just creating some efficiency mm-hmm. maybe in in their processes right. or in their uh, ch- value chain or, or in the market uh, or marketing or, or constant customer acquisition but you're not necessarily taking out the management like what i've taken mm-hmm. what i've done in the uk where private equity comes in buy the whole of the business and send the send the management or the founders away with billions or hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. that's not the case here right
1: uh, no, I don't. I don't think that is the case because I think that in this market, your management or your entrepreneurs um, drive the success of the business. Right? It's not just the company itself. It's not their product. It's maybe not even their distribution channels. It's that person that's really driving the growth. And I think that you also see. Um, and I think this happens in both traditional private equity companies, but also in early stage venture companies, right? When the founder starts to become more and more diluted, they're less incentivized to really be dedicating 100% of the time to growing that business. And that's when things can really start to go south, right? Because you're putting all of your weight really behind that top managers or the entrepreneur to really drive the growth of the company.
0: And that's one of the uniqueness of this market that makes it very challenging.
1: I think that so. That
0: you cannot just evaluate the success of a deal or the potential of a deal by everything that they teach you in private equity um, business class. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, things aren't done by the book here. <laughs>
0: yes. So you cannot look at the discounted cash flow right. and, um, and, and markets and market share and growth um, growth rates and multiples. You cannot just look at that. You have to look at some of the, some of the soft things. But you alluded to something interesting, which I've not talked about before. And you mentioned the word the founders can start getting deluded. Um, and it's interesting to see how, how that can be modeled, the rate of delusion Uh, the growth of delusion of a founder, because Mm -hmm. most founders, there there is a proportionality with success and delusion. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting to see how proportional and how fast that is happening, Say the success and the the delusion rate. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe maybe something you can map out and say, okay, we're going to be betting a lot on this founder. But we know this guy's going to get diluted at some point like all Absolutely. founders do. but how quickly would that happen and and, and, how, and how would that affect? Our, our, yeah. our returns?
1: So I think it's something we definitely map out, right? Like we can we can map out ourselves where we how we think the founder is going to need to get diluted over the next 24 months um, or whatever the period is we think that they're going to need follow-on capital for. and that's important to do. I also think what's happened a lot in this market, and I, I think it's happening less, but especially a couple of years ago when early stage capital was still pretty new to the market, um, startup companies really needed seed investment and there wasn't a lot lot of places to look. Some founders took some really bad deals and got extremely diluted, both in terms of their equity percentage and control. Um, and I think that even if those companies still exist, I think that the founders are now either really trying to find a way to get out of them because they know that the upside for them is limited. Is it because or they it too products. much? Yeah, I think it. I think. I think so. Definitely. Okay. Because even. Also, if the founder is giving away too much in the earlier stages, follow on investors that could dedicate a much larger ticket size are seeing that as well. And they want the founder to be motivated. Um, So they're, they're oftentimes saying, well, this isn't going to be a good deal for us either. The founder is going to be such a small percent of the equity. And at the end of the day, we're backing the founder.
0: Mm. So let's talk about that original question about those things that you saw. So I understood the toughness on the market, the, the uniqueness of it with regards to dependency, a keyman risk that you cannot do without uh, on the founders and a lot of soft dependency that you cannot really just model out, mm-hmm. uh, basically. But apart from that, what other things shocked you the most about this market or the way business is done that probably reduced your initial enthusiasm um, as mm-hmm. as an external investor, uh, and also on the flip side, um, and what, what 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 positive do you see? Because you're still here, you could have come back. Uh, did you see that made it still be bullish about this market? So it's, it's a two-sided question.
1: I think the thing that has frustrated me the most and. Um, frustrated us personally as an investment firm trying to you know work with major corporations, but also working with our underlying investee companies who are trying to do deals with larger enterprise companies is how long it takes to actually engage with a major corporate partner, especially a telecom or a banking partner. And I think the reason for that is a lot of just um, you know people are not incentivized to do things that will actually a partnership that'll actually grow both businesses working together. And that's been extremely frustrating. There's obviously, I mean, how can I say this, but other incentives that a lot of other companies use to try to get deals pushed through. But if you want to do it by the books, it's really difficult to get those done. And you have to be sitting in their office, by as a person, pushing it through every single day to try to make it work. And that's been very frustrating, I think.
0: And again, think going to that, Deep-diving more into that, what you just said. more prevalent if your business is B2B, right? And you're trying to do enterprise. Yeah,
1: but I think it's even relevant in this market. So we, that can bring me to another issue, is that I think it's, it's extremely... Um, It's much more expensive than you would think to acquire customers in this market. And you would think that it would be fairly cheap. Um, You know, there's fairly cheap digital advertising available. Um, You can do outdoor advertising. Consumers are hugely incentivized by referrals or anything free. But in reality, consumer groups lack trust. Um, They tend, if we're speaking of digital, they tend to have fairly low digital literacy and need to be educated on your product and platform and how to use it. People don't download apps. They're super sensitive to data. Um, All of these sorts of things uh, makes it really difficult to acquire and end consumers if that's your target market. So even then, I think you have to work with major enterprise customers that already own and control those cu- customer base because you can leverage off of their customers and their brand at the same time and their data. Yes
0: I find that what you just said that I actually remember now is one of the key things that sh- shocked me a lot when I started coming to Nigeria 2015. The power and the influence of very small players in the market to control the consumer or or aggregate consumer that you you almost cannot do without them and a big example of that is is the telco so absolutely when I came to New York ideating lots of ideas around business models um, that that are scalable with few friends and looking at business models ideas um, coming from my exiting my other business which is a consumer business and also, also always wearing that heart of what can we do uh, to just to to bring some product to the masses, and every time I am um, with people who are based in Nigeria, everything goes to the telcos. I remember one of the one of the discussion late at night. Somebody said telcos are powerful. You you, you cannot do without them. I mean, they're just powerful, and you almost need to build your own network, and which is almost impossible
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, because telcos in yeah. this country just the super
1: only powerful. ones that have a, a even a close as large of a network as the telcos are the gambling companies, right? Interesting. So the gambling
0: companies now
1: are quite... I mean, they have a very large network as well, if you consider all of their agents. So,
0: okay, right. That means that one can then map out and track how did the gambling, what is the the incentive for people to join their network?
1: (laughs) Free money, right? I promise. Free money, yeah.
0: And you can also almost see the similarity between gambling and churches. Sure religion in, okay. the, in, in Africa where you promise something big and you can easily build a massive network on the back of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, I think so too. Um, and actually thinking about churches as a network isn't a bad way to go either, right? If you can, if you're willing to go that route and incentivize those powerful parties, um, then you could also acquire customers that way. So, so the uniqueness of the, market,
0: uniqueness of the market with regards to um, aggregates of consumers um, means that you almost have to deal with that issue that you talked about, which is you, you have to deal with the gatekeeper. Even though in every other market, mature market, there's almost a decentralization of, of, of the market. Uh, there is always mm-hmm. m- no need for gatekeepers. You can Build an an application that can amass billions or or hundreds of millions of people within a very short time, but we are seeing almost the opposite here.
1: Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, um, I haven't spent a lot of time, or at least not near as much time in other uh, emerging markets as I have in Nigeria. But I imagine a lot of them go through similar sort of cycles. Um, I was speaking to somebody recently who's done a lot of investments in Bangladesh and. Although the telcos uh, certainly have a lot of power there as well, it seems like there's much more of um, just a, a peer-to-peer sort of effect in in how business cases expand, and I don't think you see that as much here. Yeah, and maybe that'll maybe that'll change. I hope it does.
0: Okay, let's flip that now to the other part of the question I was asking about. What is it that made you a bit bullish about the? About the market, about Africa, and maybe stay, given all those challenges that you just talked about as well?
1: So, uh, the obvious thing is the demographics of this country. I mean, large population, young people willing to, or spending a lot of time on their mobile phones, um, and ra- rapid rate of urbanization, all of those things, of course. But I think you can have all of those things, and the numbers look great. But I think what's most exciting is really that you have such a strong base of entrepreneurial talent. And it's the attitude of founders wanting, everybody wants to run a business. Um, The problem is it's usually they want to run multiple businesses at the same time. (laughs) And and you have a lot of uh, well-educated people that are doing it, right? That, you know, maybe have been educated in Nigeria, but have a strong developer background or have worked at other major companies um, or even returnees that are coming back and starting businesses now. That's what excites me the most.
0: Mm. So so the entrepreneur the entrepreneurial spirit, the talents, yeah. and uh, access to wider pool of talent beyond the country and, and the population as well. Um, so you moved from a private equity to a VC, to a venture fund, which is what you're doing currently. Um, Apart from the obvious difference in the ticket size and, and opportunities, the kind of deals that you look, the uniqueness of private equity and and um, and VC is not always as pronounced. Um, it's, it's always different from in, in Nigeria compared to the UK or US. So I'm interested to know that from your perspective, but also interested to know. Why did you make that move? Because mm-hmm. VC firm is so next <laughs> VC venture deals in Africa is so, uh, and Nigeria is so next and and it, it seems to be more risky compared to the PE uh, for you. So I want to know what your personal why you did that, and then the major major yeah. differences.
1: So I think I r- originally made the move. Um, I'll address that question first, from private equity to to venture, because I was I was seeing. Uh, what I saw, you know, the, the numbers in mobile, mobile adoption and then smartphone adoption, a lot of founders starting really interesting businesses, returnees coming back, uh, local founders that are coming out of corporations wanting to start something new. And I also saw um, interest from global players starting to look at the market. And for me, that meant that there would be capital for early stage companies to then grow. So, these were all the kind of things that I saw coming together, and I was you know became very interested in the space didn't know anything really. Um, not sure if I still know very much, but looked at the market for a long time and um, got an idea then of the sort of deals that I thought that I wanted to do and then I was thinking a lot of you know consumer focused business models because of the mass consumer um, i've since kind of readjusted my thinking and, and really believe that, that the market is maybe a little bit too early for that and much more focus on B2B focused on B2B-focused models now. So that was the beginning of it. That's, what, that's where I really saw the interest. And the risk profile that you allude to is certainly there, um, but, I, but I think that especially being a local player and spending all of your time focusing on one small market, uh, whereas a lot of other Africa-focused venture players are looking at the whole continent in general, I think you can really pick up some high-quality early deals and are pretty de-risked at that point if all of these other factors do come together as you expect. Um, now, the differences that, I, that I've that i certainly experienced, um, I mean, I alluded to earlier the, the necessary need for a soft side, uh, both due diligence and looking at a deal and analyzing a deal. Um, So I think that's even more important in venture. So in private equity, you can kind of, you know, map out what you believe the numbers to to be over the next couple of years, how your returns will look, you know, pretty standard average growth rates, where if you're looking at venture, the same business model that you're investing in today might not be the same business model that you're backing a year from now. And so being able to have that flexibility is hugely important, but also Putting much more weight on the soft side factors, such as the entrepreneur, his ability to attract and retain a team, his or her experience, you know, already running businesses, um, the relationships that they carry, all of those things. Um, likewise, I also think post-investment, you have to be a lot more involved in venture. Um, more than Yeah, so PE companies are certainly very involved, but in a different sort of way, right? PE companies are much more involved in a governance. I think when you're trying to be a good investor in venture and really trying to, to help these companies grow, you need to be there to provide relationships for them. You need to be there as maybe even emotional support in some cases. You need to be there to help fill in the gaps on skills maybe that they don't have, like financial analysis, you need to be their resource for fi- finding follow-on capital, and those all of those aspects I think are much more important when you're talking about early-stage deals.
0: It's interesting that you said that because I would have thought that be as much more uncertain and needs lots of support and lots of um, control than uh, so intensive more than control than, uh, absolutely,
1: and I think a lot of private equity firms really focus on that right they put their own cfo into the company um they maybe even require sign-off rights on all of the checks that's the control side and i think that that's all very strict from a governance point of view from a venture point of view you're almost like you're not a block you're a support you're putting all of your weight and your trust behind the founder and his or her ability to really grow this business and and you want to be the resource that can help make that happen um as much as you can and and sometimes i can't very much at all right maybe they need some help on um uh, expertise in software as a service market and that's not a place i really have expertise but then maybe i can reach out to my network and, and try to find them that support as well
0: yeah I, I- and, and that's true. And there's something else that you said that was stressed, that was striking to me, and that is about the fact that, for, and I think this will be cut across whether in Nigeria market or or the UK market is, for venture deals you are taking some of the leap of faith in so many things, uh, because um, the business model you are investing in now might not be what will happen in two years time, but for PE firms predominantly locked down if mm-hmm. there's a big change then there's a big problem <laughs> for everyone <laughs> and then um, so so that, that's that's quite unique now let's talk about what has happened in the nigerian ecosystem or nigerian tech ecosystem so far in the last four to five years i think you've been involved in the last mm-hmm. four to five years i want to talk about the changes uh but the good the bad, and the ugly and and, and then Get your view on the future prospect based on what has happened historically and um, the, the level of founders that have come to play, the kind of business that have been founded, the kind of capital that has been that is injected into the system, uh, the talents that has been pulled in um, and some of them look good and great and, and, and I don't want us to repeat that but I want to have some I want to get your view on the objective uh, and a critical look at how the ec- tech ecosystem has evolved in the last four years.
1: Sure. Um, Man, where to start? Okay, so I think, um, yeah, what you've seen really is that the whole tech ecosystem has certainly evolved. Um, It's certainly not mature, but I think it's getting to a point where other technologies are now able to launch their products on top of you know, the base platforms that maybe the fintech companies have already grown out. I think you've seen a lot a lot more capital come into the market. So there's been some Africa-specific funds that have raised capital now who are doing deals across the continent, have done some deals in Africa. Um, a lot of Silicon Valley-based firms are coming in, definitely showing an interest, have done deals, and I think will continue to do deals. And I think that that's certainly a benefit. I think a lot of... Talent has seen the opportunity to grow, um, the opportunity that exists in launching and growing a technology business. So they've left corporate jobs or they moved back here and started businesses. That's that's great, and I think you have seen some success stories. That's that have probably driven a lot of um, confidence and confidence in both investors and entrepreneurs um, with. You know Flutterwave and Paystack, Cars 45, a lot of these guys, um, and some of the negatives. ooh, Okay, that's harder.
0: Yeah, we can talk about that. That's, <laughs> that's part of. It. Actually, that is, it's okay to talk about those negatives. Yeah, um, no, it's Because it is. in 2015, well, the first time I came to, after I met you, I came to Nigeria. I wrote a piece and, and tech talk about, it and I said <laughs> uh, a lot of things good. A lot of good things is happening but there'll be failures and it's normal because those failures will classify. I think I use the word classify the ecosystem and just make it more solid. So it's okay to talk about those failures.
1: Yeah, I agree. And there will be, there will be failures. In every market, there, there are failures. I think my biggest concern now is the possibility that too much money will come in too fast. Um, I think that that could make a lot of, um, probably make a lot of entrepreneurs very rich. But could also mean that a lot of businesses grow too fast and aren't built on a solid foundation, as well as you know, some big failures that then really scare away investors. And we go back to square one. That's my major concern. Um also big concern that that you know maybe a lot of the money that will come in, especially from foreign investors, whether they're from Asia or Europe or the US. Uh, or that they don't know and understand the market very well and they'll lose their money quickly and then, then they'll be scared away. And I think that hurts all of us as well.
0: Mm. So uh, that's super important. And uh, and I think you're right in the sense that the ecosystem growth in peaks and throats and then always be that there's a cycle of, of many things happening but as long as we well, plot it and it's still growing it could be zigzag but it's growing then we, we should be fine but one of the thing i wanted to pick your brain on is the um, the interconnectivity of the markets and, and global market and, yeah. uh, and, and the effect of that on on everyone so uh, i think we can configure maybe conveniently say now that uh, we're in a bull's market in america america's in a bull's market where there's a lot of cheap money going into ventures because of low interest rates and appetite to be to invest in venture deals on the back of growth that has on the back of the growth that has happened with uh, companies that were founded during the recession grown significantly so talking about your uber Airbnb, and it's been a lot of money flowing and we can see the effect of that so it's not cool to build startup company plus the fact that it's easier to build technology company now one other thing i want to pick your brain on is what will be the impact of that when the bear market happens, which it will, <laughs> <laughs> and and, and then the cheap money dries out, and, mm-hmm. the, and interest then in, interest rate goes up, and and there is like a hint of a global recession. What is your view on how that will affect the Nigerian market, Nigerian tech ecosystem, and w- and what should an entrepreneur be thinking about the type of business that will survive that going forward?
1: Survival. So it's interesting. I'm I'm actually uh, reading a book that everybody should read is called Anti-Fragility. Um, and I think it applies very well to this market because as you said, we go through lots of ups and downs no matter what the global economy is doing, right? We're, we're, we're riding our own train over here. Um, but it, essentially the book talks about business models that do do well in all up, up and down markets but even do better in softer markets and, and really um, drive growth during that phase. So I think you're right. I think we will, the global market, especially the U.S., will go into a bear market and venture capital there is going to really dry up. Um, But I think that could go either way for Nigeria. I think on one side, uh, investors could still see this as an attractive market to invest in because the U.S. market or developed markets have become much more soft. I think more likely, though, that sort of... um, Standard global venture money probably will dry up a bit for Nigeria and other developing markets. However, I think you could still see a lot of money coming in from Asia that hasn't even really come to this market very much at all. Um, China, China certainly is looking at the entire continent a lot more and I think that they'll start looking a lot more at Nigeria as well. What does it mean for founders? Well, yeah, I think building business models that are focusing on Building the basic structure for the digital marketplace that needs to be there no matter what kind of environment you're in is always beneficial. And being able to build those business models out with still looking at profitability and free cash flow. We do have some companies in our portfolio that I think think especially it's become apparent that maybe they're not going to be the venture model of really fast growth and not reaching profitability for a while and we've really tried to take a step back and say hey how can we reposition this business model to make sure that they can survive and at least make it to the point where they're an acquisition target and I think really driving um, driving the bottom line in terms of profit and free cash flow is hugely important. Another great book is Profit First um, so your readers should read that.
0: That's good. Um, I'm interested in two things. One, and I'm going to ask you one after the other. The first one I want to ask is about your view on the convergence of PE uh, deals and venture deals. Mm-hmm. Um, not just in Nigeria, globally. What is the dynamics of that and how uh, eventual investors should be looking at deals especially in a market where exit is far away and um, and then there is the shorter runway for entrepreneurs to raise money because there's not enough um options to raise venture deals and so you could be the only investor in that company or only three people and so there's no cities a b c d Uh, if if you can get to b you're you're a a superstar Mm -hmm. and 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 how venture investor can view the market almost from the point islands of, of a pe person I was, I'm just interested in that mm. convergence of, of, of both model especially in a place like Nigeria
1: so yeah you're right I think it's it's weird um, weird for me to see companies that if you look at two companies right a traditional real estate company that's maybe doing office space and then we work we work as a technology company but that company is a standard private equity company or in this market if you look at IHS Towers, which is a telecom infrastructure company, and you look at Wi-Fi.ng, right? IHS, clearly private equity backed, standard private equity company, Wi-Fi.ng, Tizeti is much more of the in the technology venture sphere. So what differentiates the two? I'm not sure, but I, I agree. I think that they'll continue to converge much more. And you're seeing that with private equity players like TPG, for example, doing a lot more venture side, right? So they know that these are the the, the standard venture deals will, will grow and they're going to become private equity targets. So a private equity company is um, certainly focused on your free cash flow at the end of the day and how that's growing. So, you know, it's a pretty standard growth rate. They don't, they're not looking for the four times an annual run rate growth every year they're more looking for a steady growth and that you're driving free cash flow and that there are potentials of course to exit the business
0: it's interesting you mentioned um, Wi-Fi company ng and as a comparison to another another company which is PE Bur and I could say that maybe maybe it's it has to do with where, where it is that they got the money from because they could have gotten money from PE firm and then mm-hmm. we then see the companies with a different point of view that it could be a capex play business, high capex because they really? have to buy all of, and install all of this stuff. Yes, there is a lot, of, um, there's a lot of subscription around it, but then there are other companies like maybe your Swift Network or Smile that probably would not look for venture capital to raise money. They, would, from day one, they are thinking about PE firms because mm-hmm. they know that this is a capital. So I was thinking though, maybe uh, it's whoever gives the money that sometimes we use that to frame. But as an investor, maybe we just think, okay, is this business model? What's my thesis, and uh, and it, does this business model fit into that? And that leads to my second question, uh, originally, which is, what is your overarching thesis? And now I'm not talking about your you uh, I know you work for singularity and I'm talking about singularity thesis but what is um lexis personal thesis about the market that you would take with you anywhere that this is what you con- what you're convinced about and that you really want to back
1: um, I'm convinced that the easiest problems to solve are today are problems that major businesses are trying to meet because those customers are easier to acquire, but where the growth is driven by the underlying consumers of those businesses. So payments is a great example of that. Um, some software companies might be an example of that. So my my belief is that this market will continue to grow and mature. Um, I think that probably over the next year we're going to have a couple of difficult events, um, whether that's elections or it's a global market. But I. I do believe that this country, just with its people and its energy itself, has so much to offer in terms of growth and um, and its resilience. So, um, so yeah, that's really what I believe and what I'm focusing on.
0: And that's what you're seeing. You want to back going forward. Exactly. Entrepreneurs that are, are, are I don't want to tease that out, entrepreneurs that are doing stuff around solving problems for businesses with large Yeah.
1: Yeah. So B2B-focused business models, um, but where the growth is underlying driven by the growth, where the revenue growth is driven by the underlying growth of that company's users or consumers. So for example, um, I can take, uh, uh, let's say, a company called Smile ID that we've invested in. So they have a product that is um, offers 3d facial recognition for usually financial companies to verify that their customer is who they believe they are so they do the deal directly with their business partner but they generate revenue based on every query that is made through their platform that's the sort of stuff that we really like
0: that's good and um, because those kind of businesses will always ride on the back of the growth of their of the of their customers who are also making money so you said oh, you're saving money for them or you're making them to make more money or yeah. increasing efficiency now let's talk a bit about your background that's where we to sort of have started where, where you grew up and um and uh, you started getting interested in africa before you did your hitchhiking uh, is it hitchhiking or you're just doing um yeah there, gap was, there
1: was a little bit of hitchhiking there did you yeah that's where, where i about even, in Africa? Um, i even at one point hopped hopped on a car of a moving train and traveled through the desert in Mauritania to get from one side to the other.
0: Why did you do that?
1: Because the to go around, uh, the place that I wanted to go to, I would have had to go very far south and then very far north again. So I just uh, hopped on the train, which is what a lot of locals do.
0: Right, that's interesting. So which part of Africa did you travel around?
1: Um, so I started my trip... Um, look I should I should probably preface this that when I booked my trip to go to Africa I was going to Africa because I hadn't explored it at all before I'd been to a lot of other regions in the world and I would booked my trip starting in Ethiopia and I was traveling by myself Um, for those that don't know me I'm about five foot tall and very very small petite white girl and I was terrified of Africa. I was like, I'm, my parents were terrified. I was like, oh, I, you know, I, brought, like, I had my mace can, I had like, my satellite phone that worked everywhere. The first day that I arrived in, in Ethiopia, I jumped into a, a street party and I had the time of my life. And I just realized that I was ignorant and there was absolutely nothing to be afraid of and fell in love with it right away. Interesting. Yeah. And from Ethiopia, I traveled around down the whole eastern side, a little bit of central Africa as well. And then I flew to Mali and went um, Mali, Senegal, and then traveled down overland to uh, Liberia. Uh, and that trip, I never had been to Nigeria before. Actually, I'd never even been to Nigeria before I accepted the job to move here.
0: Interesting. So when you were traveling then, were you staying in um airbnb or non-airbnb maybe <laughs> local. at <local, laughs> yeah, airbnb
1: local, didn't really exist yeah when then. was this when <laughs> was this not in africa i mean i guess this was eight years ago
0: okay so that would yeah. be like um, 2010 yeah. or 2009 yeah, about then. yeah and so you were just jumping into hotels local small hotels or
1: yeah so yes n- local guest houses um a lot of times uh, and i think this is a a- amazing traveling as a woman by yourself you get invited into families to stay with them you know the the matriarch of the family is just wants to take you under her wing and feed you and treat you as their daughter so that happened a lot i stayed with a lot of families so you met just
0: randomly on, on, yeah, on yeah maybe at the airport and say, okay, just made friends <laughs> that's a good learning about how to travel around africa then just Make, make friends and be friendly. So that, that was your first taste in the continent, and then you went back, and then you got a job with that. Yeah, exactly. And were you looking, or just something that just yeah. people know that you are interested in Africa? And you just-
1: so I was very, very much looking. So actually, the first Africa-focused job I got was at an impact investing firm based in Washington, D.C., D. Um, called Small Enterprise Assistance Funds. And... I was trying to get on the continent somewhere, and they were trying to launch a couple of funds on the continent. Both of those fell through. Actually, at that time, there was um, a women's Nigeria fund that they were trying to launch. And as both of those kind of, you know, six months after working there, when it looked like neither one of the funds was going to happen, I met uh, one of the partners at Verad and we met for coffee in New York. He offered me a job, and I accepted right away.
0: You met one of the partners of in New York. Yeah. And over drinks and just like, okay, yeah. would you like to come? That's quite good. We, we, but you did, uh, you were you're a chartered financial analyst. Right. So no much progression for you would have been to work in PE firms or banks.
1: Exactly. Much more traditional asset management.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, I came to Africa and then started doing this and then you move into private equity. That, that's a super interesting story. So I wonder end this conversation by asking you some series of questions um some of them might not be totally related to you at least the first one but but you can decide the way you want it's just a question and and then you just need to just give one 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 answer Uh, the first one is what is your biggest business pain point so i know you're not running a traditional business you're you're running a firm but what is your biggest pain point in in your line of work
1: internet (laughs) so for the listeners out there Dotun is actually at my house doing this interview now and I explained to him that the internet in my office seldom works so I work from home a lot
0: so internet is a big one because as an investor you have to jump on your phone, you have to be in a board meeting sometimes remotely you have to talk to a lot of people every time so mm-hmm. I, I feel you, mm-hmm. I understand that as well um, the, yeah so that's the biggest pain point. The, the second one is what is your number one growth metric? Again this question is majorly for entrepreneurs who are maybe doing a lot of marketing or need to grow their business but you also need to grow your business which is maybe your customers are entrepreneurs but what is your what is the number one thing that you check up or every day to know whether your firm or your business is growing
1: huh that's a good question um so certainly not anything social media related sorry i'm not answering this very fast right um Ooh. there's nothing really on a daily basis, but on a quarterly basis, it's certainly revenue growth in my underlying investments because that is something we track.
0: You track the revenue growth of all your portfolio companies.
1: Yes, well, the ones where we have information rights right. that allow us to, yes. Okay,
0: well, you're not looking at maybe deal flow as a, as a way to grow uh, stuff?
1: Sure, yeah, but you know, I don't think volume of deal flow is really the factor in in terms of growth. Um. I almost feel like there's a little bit of an inverse relationship between volume and quality. So we do get a lot of deal flow. And actually, we should be better about tracking all of it. But we don't because we have a very small team and haven't really put in the systems and processes to do that. Shame on me because I always yell at my entrepreneurs about putting in systems and processes.
0: (laughs) It's funny though. So Venture from as a business are not investable. It just it's, it's, it's a lifestyle inefficient yeah. whole business, and when we get on the entrepreneurs you need to put a system in place. And people come and look at the look at the back end of the venture. Yeah, firm. I need
1: a consultant. Does anybody want to come help me out? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's hurry hard. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So so you you you've never been tracking this. You, you said something about the inverse relationship between volume and quality, especially here, which mm-hmm. is which is true. I understand that. If you put your fingers out there and say, I'm an investor, you're gonna get like 200 people that will apply to you Completely. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So you just need to be distinct about, I'm an investor, but I invest in X, Y, Z, and I don't care about A, B, C.
1: Completely, exactly. And you know, it's kind of like, there's a lot of pitch competitions going on now on the continent, and you seldom see the best deal flow at those pitch competitions. For example, I think it's a similar sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, which book are you reading? I think mean, you talk about two books, but which book are you reading at the moment?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually, um, so I am still, I haven't quite finished uh, Anti-Fragility. Um, so I'm reading that one. I Let's see, the last thing, I didn't read it, but I listened to it. I listened to a podcast called The Hidden Brain, which I would also recommend to your users. It's a lot about behavioral economics. Love it. Especially listen to the ones on Google and Uber. They're really interesting.
0: Interesting. I'm gonna check that out. Which business is getting you exacted at the moment?
1: Um. Well, if I told you, I'd be sharing my Deal Flow.
0: That's fine. <laughs> because we're gonna somehow they're gonna come out, but yeah, okay, that would be so, good. So
1: something that I think is open, open uh, already out in the market, uh, which I don't mind discussing. Um, I am excited for about what Kobo360 is doing. I like the business model. Um, I think Lori Systems has also done it well in other markets. Yeah,
0: yeah. I've heard good stuff about our business as well. And I think we should get the founder here
1: to talk about stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Um, I know we've planned this for some time. Uh, We couldn't have it in Paris, but now we have have it in Lagos. So it's great that we we had this conversation. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Dotun. This was fun. Building the Future Podcast
0: Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dolton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future, and you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. STARTA.com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.